So Romans chapter 6, verse 1. We are going to read verses 1 through 14. Uh, So please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of the righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Amen. Lord, we we want to acknowledge that, uh, that the word is living and active because you are living and active in it. Christ, that it has authority and power in our lives simply uh, because it is your spirit that has guided it and guides our hearts. And so, Father, I pray that it would have this uh, incredible effect in our hearts, God, that whatever is said of me, God, that it would be totally forgotten because I have nothing good to say. <laughs> Lord, but, but, but what is truth gleaned from your word, God, may, may that just be written in our hearts and in our minds, Jesus, that by every step we take forward, Lord, it would be by this word as a lamp into our feet and a light into our path in a dark and dying world. Help us, Jesus. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat, guys. Have a seat. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you were not under law, but under grace, right? For you are not under law, but you are under grace. And I I, I just want to talk about grace, and I want to talk about what it means to not be under the law, right? And and I, I think this is all very foundational for us as Christians. A lot of us may know this concept. Yes, of course, grace means I'm not held to the standard of just keeping up rules, right? But I'm, I'm freed and I am forgiven, right? That we get to live in freedom as Christians, right? We understand this, uh, but I think there's also this undertone in the church and in my life in particular, I don't know about yours, but there is this, this undertone of the, this idea that grace is dangerous. That grace is very, very dangerous. 
Now, it's not dangerous in the sense that, you know, it, it, grace can harm us, right? Because grace is a gift from God, right? But grace is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Because the concept, everyone, the, the concept, guys, of uh, committing treason towards the creator of the universe, right? about disobeying the the creator Yahweh, the Lord over our lives, the concept of disobeying him, and then him saying, I love you and I forgive you, enter into eternal paradise with me, can make some people say, well, if I can get away with that, right? Can't I get away with this too, right? Am I the only one, right? Grace is dangerous, isn't it? Grace is dangerous. And, and, and do you know what? That is the criticism of Christianity. That is one of the major criticisms from Bible scholars or historical people that just look at the historical Jesus. A lot of people that look at the historical Jesus say, well, the apostles, they made up this concept of grace because they didn't really want to listen to Jesus' teaching, right? They didn't really want to do what he says, so they just said, well, if I just believe in him, I'm okay, and I don't have to do anything, right? That's the main criticism of Christianity, because when under this concept that we have been forgiven, and that no matter what we do, or no matter what we don't do, God's grace has empowered us to live a fulfilled life, but also to, et- uh, to enter into eternity with him, a lot of people squander that, don't they, right? A lot of people take advantage of that, myself included, Myself included. And I think, guys, I think that's where legalism sprouts from. I think that's where legalism comes from. I think legalism comes from, you know, those like the staunch, hypocritical, judgmental Christians that the world likes to make fun of, you know, right? Like Angela from The Office, right? Any of you watch The Office? Right, those, those staunch, hypocritical, judgmental Christians that society just like paints this picture and, and just declares that's everyone, that's every Christian, right? I, I, I think that whole legalistic um, character almost um, and, and, and legalism and people feeling like a super uptight about we have to keep the rules, we have to keep the rules and there's no, uh, there's no room for disobedience, right? Um, I think those Christians come from this genuine fear of grace. This genuine fear of grace. If Christians think that God will just forgive them for anything, then they will just go and do whatever they want and the church will be chaos, right? The world will be chaos. That's a real fear, isn't it? That's a real fear when we look into the outside world and we say, well, they're breaking the rules, right? They're breaking the rules. This is what God says. This is what they're doing. They're breaking the rules, right? And if we could just get them to follow the rules, then world will be at peace, right? And this is what the church in Rome was thinking at this time. Because guys, the church in Rome and Rome in general was not that much different from our society today right? It was very sexually promiscuous. Uh, There was a lot of political corruption, right? There was a lot of social unrest. In Roman oppression was very real, and and Christians at this time were were very 
uh, were, were very doubtful as to what the concept of grace really meant because they were afraid that people would come to Jesus, right? The Jews in particular in Rome who had lived this life of following the law very carefully and to a T that the second they came to Christ that they would say, oh, I'm forgiven. I don't have to follow the law anymore. Cool. I could just do what the rest of Roman culture is doing, right? And, and, and so that's kind of the fear of grace. And that's the, that's a real fear for parents that have high schoolers and college students. Those are, that's the particular age group I work with, right? People who grow up in church, right? Uh, these, these, these parents have a real fear. It's, it's a very real fear because it happens of, of their children who have grown up in church and grown up with this, uh, this culture of rules will go off to college and then see like, oh, well, Jesus will forgive me anyways, and then just assimilate into the culture, right? Does that make sense? It's, it's a fear of grace, it's a fear that I have. It's a fear that I think we all experience at one point as believers, a fear of grace. And the church in Rome was thinking the same thing. And so, and so they say this, and, and so Paul responds to that. Paul says, well, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, right? Shall, Paul asks the question that nobody really asks explicitly, right? But our subconscious kind of thinks this way, right? He asks, should we just continue doing our own thing? I mean, grace has us covered. Jesus has forgiven us. So can't we just do what makes us happy and hope that people don't judge us, right? And so Paul's asking the question that, once again, I don't think we, we say this like, well, I mean, I think I can continue in sin because Jesus has forgiven me. No one really thinks that way, Right. Right, the, the, the classic Christian inside of us, you know, uses different language, right? We use different language to get around it. Well, it's not really sin and, you know, all things are permissible, but not all things are profitable, right? And I don't think it's stumbling anyone around me. It's just between, you know, and God knows my heart, right? So, so we, we have, we have these, these things that we say in our minds and our subconscious, but what really we're saying is grace can abound. I can continue in sin, so grace may abound, Right? And so Paul is saying, shall we continue in sin, right? And this is an honest question, right? I think, I think what's awesome about Paul and about all the apostles really in their epistles is that they, they ask very honest questions that I think we as Christians are afraid to ask because we don't want to sound unholy, right? But they ask real questions. Should we keep sinning? If grace has us, should we just keep doing our thing? And Paul <laughs> And Paul responds with a certainly not, right? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. And the expression in Greek really means don't even think about it, right? It means like just get that out of your mind. The second that thought pops up, just no, that's that's not what you should be thinking about. He says this, certainly not, verse 2. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. So first, Paul says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So, so people are saying, well, well can I just continue the sin? Doesn't, doesn't grace have me? Doesn't grace cover me? And Paul says, why on earth would you want to stay in that? 
Certainly not shall we who died to sin still remain in it, right? And you know what? Uh, one thing I love about uh, California, one of my favorite things, and this is a story I tell my youth kids and they laugh and stuff, but uh, one thing I love about California is that we have authentic Mexican food, right? We have very authentic, good Mexican food. We have Guadalajara that's just right down the road. We have Establos Meat Market. You know, we can find real Mexican food here because we're so close to the border, right? We have actual Mexican food. It's so good, right? It's so good. Guys, it's so good. (laughs) We have actual, authentic Mexican food, right? That just makes my heart so happy, right? Not Chipotle, real Mexican food, right? And, 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 and so we have this authentic Mexican food around that is so delicious, right? And one time uh, when I was, in Indi- I was in Indiana, right? I was in Indiana. Yes. Oh, some of you are like, ugh, why were you in Indiana, right? I was in Indiana. I know. I know. I, I've never been back. I never will, right? I was in Indiana. Sorry if you're from Indiana. I, I'm totally joking. Not really. But... So I was there and I was spending time, you know, I was with a group of friends and everyone was like, all right, you know, we're we're pretty hungry. Like, what do you guys want to eat? And and they said, "Uh, I'm feeling Mexican food, right? And I'm like, yes, right? Because my concept of Mexican food as a Californian is different from their concept of Mexican food as Indianans. Indianans? Indians? I don't know. (laughs) From Indiana, right? And so they say, let's go get Mexican food. And I am so uh, elated because I have not had Mexican food in a week at that point. And I was having withdrawals. I was calling home and just saying, just describe, I was calling my brother, just describe to me what the taco was like. Just, you know, and uh, I have a problem. But, but uh, yeah, they say, let's go get Mexican food. So I get in the car. I'm really happy. I'm really hungry. And, and we, we go into this, we, we park and I see in front of me, um, I don't think I've ever been this disappointed in my entire life. It was a Taco Bell. It was a Taco Bell. And, and I'm just like, what? I, I think uh, it was Pastor Mark that calls it toxic hell, right? Taco Bell, toxic hell. And, and, and I, look, I look and I just, my heart dies, right? I question, I question the goodness of God at that point and my friend's salvation, right? I, 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 I question all of it. And, and I'm like, guys, you said Mexican. This is not Mexican food. This is the furthest thing from Mexican food. The only thing it has in common is that they have a tortilla, right? That's it. And, 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 and so, and, and, and all this to say, when, when Paul says, certainly not, how shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? I, I, I think what Paul is really saying, he's like, why would you go back to Taco Bell when you know that there's awesome Mexican food, right? And, and I know that's a stupid analogy, but I hope it sticks with you where he's saying, why would you go back to talk, uh, Taco Bell? It will satisfy you for a moment and then you'll be in the bathroom for hours, right? It's the same thing with sin, isn't it? It's the same exact thing. It's the same thing with sin. So he's saying, why on earth would you go back to that? You know, he's saying, why on earth would you, why you know how good life with Christ is? You know how good life with Christ is. You shouldn't want to go back. Or do you not know that as many of us that were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in the newness of life. And that's what baptism is, guys. When we go underwater, it's a symbol that we've died to our sin, right? We've died to our sin. This means that Christ, when he was on the cross, he took all of your sin and he nailed it there. He nailed it onto that cross when he was there. He said, I'm going to take all the sin, all the baggage, all the frustration, all the familial issues, all the sins and all the addiction. I'm going to take it. I'm going to nail it to the cross. He killed your sin. He died with it. He took the old you and he took it to the grave with him. And the old you did not come out of the grave when Jesus rose again. It was just Jesus. It was just Jesus. And we, and we guys, need to identify not only with the death that took away our sin, but the life of the newness of living in it, right? And that's what salvation is, guys. It's saying Christ has killed my sin. He was in the grave. And when he rose again, my sin was no longer on his shoulders. It was no longer on the cross. It is dead and buried in the grave. And now by identifying with Christ's life, I now walk in the newness of life with him. Heaven doesn't start when you die. It starts now. And, and, and that's what being saved is, that we walk in this newness of life alongside Christ. And Paul says that in verse 5. He says that here in verse 5. Look down with me. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So we love to die with Christ, right? We love it when he takes our sin and he kills that, right? Because we no longer have to be punished for our sin. We don't have to be identified with our sin. So we love dying with Christ, but it's the living part, I think, that we get confused, isn't it? We like, you know, we like our souls to die the death that Jesus died because it means that we no longer have all this sin. But living with Christ is a lot harder, isn't it? It's a lot harder. It's step by step living in the newness of life with him. And he says that we have been united together in the likeness of his death and in the likeness of his resurrection. And united together, guys, expresses a close union. Morris described it as this. He says, exactly expresses the process by which a graft becomes united with the life of a tree. The union is of its closest sorts and life from Christ flows through to him. It's like grafting a branch onto a tree. It is, it is assimilating to the tree. So being united together in the likeness of his death and his resurrection means that it becomes our identity as it is Christ's identity. That is why, and I say this every single time I preach, uh, Christian, the word Christian is rarely used in the Bible. It is in Christ. We are described as people that are in Christ. Christ. We are grafted into who he is. We are assimilated into the life and blessings of Jesus Christ. We are a part of him. We are brought into his life. And I don't think we realize sometimes how united we really are with Christ. 
Our identities are linked with his and we are united with him in death and in life. And that's good news, right? It's really good news, guys, because I want to talk about like this concept of sin and dealing with it, I think is really foreign to us sometimes. Because this means that living with Christ is so much more than saying, hey, stop sinning. Right? Living a Christian life, living a life in Christ is so much more than, hey, cut it out, behave. Right? That is why I love what Carissa does in our children's ministry. She's not teaching your kids just how to behave. She's teaching them about Jesus. The kids ministry volunteers in there, they're not just saying, hey, just obey your parents and that's it. Of course they do that, right? But, but, they're, but they're teaching them about Christ, right? It's not just stop sinning. It is so much more, brothers and sisters. The Christian life is so much more than let's just try and behave. Let's try and get better. For those of you that grew up around that moralistic and religious rhetoric of just behave and don't screw up, I'm here to tell you that that's not the gospel. I've had several meetings with college students where I have to reintroduce them to the gospel because their entire childhood they were taught that being a follower of Jesus means that they just have to like just get good grades not mess up, don't do drugs, and just go to college, get married, and shut up, right? That's, that's, that's just what they've grown up hearing. And then, then they, they actually try to be, like when they discover who they are individually and they discover their likes and their dislikes, their hobbies and their personality and all of these quirks, and that doesn't line up with the perfect image of what they've been told the Christian is. And so they're confused. So they're saying, well, I'm not, I'm not like this person at this church that I've always been told to emulate. So I must not be a Christian, and some of you have grown up with that, where it's like all these this, this morals and these rituals and stuff. I, I, I don't know if I identify it, so I, maybe I'm not as Christian as I thought I was, right? The gospel is not that. The gospel is that God loves you with an immeasurable amount of love. That he saw in you a child worth dying for. And that Christ would endure all separation from God so that you and I would not have to. The gospel is rooted in the very fact that you and I cannot be good enough. That we cannot measure up to this perfect state. That we cannot follow all the rules and institutions that we have set up for ourselves. That is the foundation of of the gospel is first saying, well, I'm not God. And so not only can I not make up what standard of righteousness is, but I also cannot measure up to anybody else's standards of righteousness. So I need Jesus to save me or else I will be undone. That's the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 6.17, it says, But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. As we draw closer to Jesus, as we draw closer to him, as we discover his character, as we grow in relationship with him, 
the one who knows us more than we even know ourselves, we start to become more like him. But Jesus has this amazing way of making you like him, but also giving you your individuality. Because he created you individually. He loves you individually. He loves how unique you are. He loves your quirks and your personality traits. So Christ is in the business of making you like him, but allowing you to keep who he has made you to be. And that is the beauty of living a life unified to Christ. So, family, dying to our sin is not necessarily the end goal. Does that make sense? Dying to sin is not the end goal. It's not just stop and then try not to do anything bad until Jesus comes back, right? There's more. There's a dying to ourselves, right? And then there is a living to Christ afterwards, right? There's a dying to self and then a living to Christ, right? And that is, that is the step of nature. That is the, um, that is the heartbeat of creation, right? The heartbeat of creation is this. I remember uh, about a year ago, there was, the, the, uh, hu- there was a huge fire in Santa Barbara right? A huge fire in Santa Barbara. It was, it was really bad, and it took a while uh, to take it out. Some of you guys remember that, and there's big fires going on right now all over California because it's fire season, right? Lucky us, right? But, but what's really cool is that just a few months after that, while I was driving to and from Santa Barbara for some stuff, I noticed that at the same place where there was such destruction and fire, like the fire was happening, where, it, where the land had once been charred, now where there was this beautiful and lush array of wildflowers. That is how nature works. One thing dies so that newer and more beautiful life may rise. That is the way God has created nature. And we are no exception. That in our death, in our dying to ourselves, more beauty arises from that. And our dying to our sin, and our dying to our own self-will, our selfishness, our pride, our lust, our greed, and us dying to these things, what happens is that a newer and more fulfilling and more beautiful life comes and grows in its place. That is the way God has created us. We must not forget that the creator of man is also the creator of the trees and the fields. He's created a pattern by which we all must obey. Too many Christians, Warren Wearsby said this, he said, too many Christians are betweeners. They live between Egypt and Canaan. They live between slavery and the promised land. Saved but never satisfied. Or they live between Good Friday and Easter, believing in the cross but not entering into the power and the glory of the resurrection. Meaning we believe Jesus has taken away our sins and he's forgiven us, but we have not yet walked into the new life of his resurrection. Bishop Nikolai Vilermanamamanama, I don't know his last name. Some guy way smarter than I am. He said, only in the light of the resurrection does life receive meaning. And Paul says this in verse 8. He says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, 
dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Some of you may be thinking, okay, like I, I, I know that this, this life, like a life with Christ is much better. And that I need, to, I need to repent of my sin. I need to get rid of my baggage and stuff. But there's always that how, right? I know that there's some deep, dark things that I struggle with that I'm always asking God, but how? How do, I, how do I get rid of this? How do I die to myself here? I know that you've forgiven me, but I don't want to struggle with this anymore. I don't want this pride anymore. Or whatever it is for you. And there's this story um, that I think Pastor Rob has told a few times. I like telling him. It says, in the 14th century, two brothers fought for the right to rule over a dukedom that is in Belgium. The elder brother's name was Reynold, uh, but he was commonly called Crassus, a Latin name for meaning fat. For he was hor- horribly, it says horribly obese, right? He was horribly obese. And after a heated battle, Reynold's younger brother, Edward, led a successful revolt against him and assumed the title of Duke over his lands. But instead of killing Reynold, Edward devised a curious imprisonment. Some of you know where I'm going with this. He had a room in the castle built around Crassus, a room with only one door, and the door was not locked, and the windows were not barred, and Edward promised Reynold that he could regain his land and his title any time he wanted to. All he would have to do is leave the room of his imprisonment. The obstacle to freedom was not in the doors or the windows, but Reynold himself being grossly overweight, he would not fit through the door, even though it was a near normal size. All Reynold needed to do was diet down to a smaller size, then walk out a free man with all he had before his fall. However, his younger brother kept sending him an assortment of tasty foods, and Reynold's desire, desire to be free never won out over his desire to eat. Some would accuse Duke Edward of being cruel to his older brother, but he would simply reply, My brother's not a prisoner. He may leave when he so wills. But Reynold stayed in that room for ten years until Edward himself was killed in battle. And so to recap that story for you, right? Crassus, his sin was gluttony, and he was morbidly obese, and once lost in battle, he was imprisoned in this room, and he all, all he had to do was walk out, but his brother kept sending him food and food, and if he just dieted a little bit, he could have walked out and regained his kingdom. But as the storyteller says here, that it was his desire to be free was not as strong as his desire for his sin. And I feel like Crassus sometimes, huh? Like, how about you? Like, I, I don't know, I, I feel like that. I feel like my desire to sin sometimes trumps my desire to be free. And I think it is so hard for us because we think that giving up sin 
is sometimes a waste of time. Sometimes we're so stuck in our ways. Or, well, you know, this is just the way I've thought, you know, for 30, 40 years. Or this is just what I've struggled with for 15 years. Some of us are so caught in this. And, you know, a fear of guilt. Fear and guilt, guys, are are such terrible um, remedies for sin. Trying to scare people into not sinning anymore never works. Never works. It is only when people are caught in their own sin and God says, do you want freedom? That's where it really works. Fear, guilt, really, maybe for a season, it'll stop us from sinning. Never permanent. We must go back to Romans chapter one, where it says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That's what it says in Romans 1. Set apart, right? We're supposed to be set apart as Christians, right? In the world, not of the world, yes? Yeah. The word separated. That we are separated for the gospel. Set apart. The word set apart in the Greek is aporiso. Aporiso. And the word can be tracked back to where we get the word horizon. The word set apart or separated, is apariso. It's where, the, where we get the word horizon. And the word literally is translated into off-horizon. We are off-horizon. We have a different horizon. We have a new horizon. As Christians, if we are set apart for the gospel, it means that we have a new horizon ahead of us. The Christian life is not made up of rules to keep us in line. It is one of discovering new horizons. Discovering what the world beyond a room full of food looks like. Being curious and adventurous and discovering what new forms of righteousness look like. What it means to be free. Curiosity of what it truly means to be free is a much, much, much better motivator than fear or guilt. A desire for a life with God is so much more enticing than a fear of hell. So much more enticing. So much more beautiful. Made up standards of righteousness don't work. Some of you have made up your own standards of righteousness, whether it be church attendance, right? Habits, political views, religion, some of, we've made up our own standards of righteousness. So someone is a good Christian if they blank. Someone is solid if they blank, right? And, and this is something that I am guilty with with many of my friends. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of analyze people based off their service or their attitude and we'll be like, oh, that guy's solid. Or I just don't think they're solid enough for blank. We like to come up with these made-up standards, right? We like, to, we like to measure people. We like to separate Christians from society. We, we like to make up very clear lines, right? Very clear divisions, right? Guys, standards of righteousness and made-up rules, they do a good job of separating us from society. Separating us from the people that we need to reach. But living under grace... 
sets us up to experience new horizons. So a made-up standard for man, to give you an example, and, and, and I may offend some of you, I don't know. Pastor Rob will be here next week. But I, I, I truly believe, this is, this is my view, um, that a made-up standard for man would be, we do not support gay marriage because it is a rule we must follow, and that is the line between Christians and the world. That is the line because God says so. That is a made-up standard of man. Now, don't get crazy on me for a second. Listen. Living in the new horizon under grace is this. Through pursuing Christ, we as Christians are going to have the most amazing and epic marriages that exist. We are going to discover daily what it means to have just the most flourishing marriage that God could ever imagine up. And we are going to display love so passionate and healthy that when the world looks at us, they have to know that it's the right way. That's the difference between a made-up man standard and what God's new horizon is for the world. We as Christians are supposed to be this image of a new horizon, the city set upon the hill, a new possibility for mankind. We are supposed to be the alternative, not in a way of, well, they're clearly different from us, but in the way, oh my gosh, they do marriage so well. Maybe we should take advice from the Christians. Can you guys imagine if the Christian divorce rate was only like 10% instead of like 48? Can you imagine if our divorce rate was like 10 while the rest of the world's was 50 to 60? Can you imagine how much of a voice we would have in our culture if we did marriage right? And insert whatever thing right? If we did education right, if we did politics right, if we did voting right, if we did raising our children right, can you imagine how much bigger of a voice we would have if we just looked at grace that has been offered to us and say, whoa, 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 well, this sin that the world has seeped into, I know that that is, that is a old horizon for me. I have passed that and there's this new and epic thing ahead of me and I want to lead the charge for the rest of my community and show them the right way. Some of us, guys, have a hard time still with that because we've been swept up into this idea that God is a taker and not a giver. That he wants to take from you. Right, And once he takes, he never gives back. And, and, and you know what? Maybe you don't struggle with that, but I do. Because when God asks for my will, when God asks for my sin, when God asks for all of these things, and he asks me to sacrifice, he asks me to lay down my life, he asks for my tithes, and he asks for my resources, and he asks for my time, and he asks for my emotions, when he asks for all of these things, sometimes I get this view that God is a taker. All he wants to do is take from me. And some of you haven't said that explicitly because you're better people than I, but I've said it. I feel like God's a taker. But in reality, my brothers and sisters, God is in the business of taking our self-absorbed will with his right hand and then giving us true identity and fulfillment with his left. He takes with his right hand and he gives us back better things with his left. 
Jesus says in Matthew 5, 29, if our right eye causes us to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And it's better for your members to perish than the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. God is saying it's better for one thing to die than for all of you to die. And I'll close here. Sometimes, guys, I, I think we have this view of sin as this dark, dark thing. And it is, right? But, I, but I, I think I have this different perspective where I think sin is this burst of anger, raging alcoholism, looking at porn, being caught in a web of lies. I'll look on the news and I'll be like, that's sin, right? I'll look at whatever political figures and that's sin. Do you know what sin is for me? Sin is a subtle mistrust that God wants what's best for me and that he's worth giving myself to. Sin for me is the super subtle and quiet mistrust in God that I don't really trust that he's going to give as much as he says he's going to give. And so I'll give him a little bit but I'll keep this from me just in case he doesn't hold up his end of the bargain. I'll give him my tithe, but I won't give him my offering. Or I'll give him Sundays. I won't give him the rest of my week. I'll give him 20 minutes in the Word, sure. I'm, I'm not going to give him, I'm not going to give him going deeper. I'm not sure if it's worth it. That's sin for me. That's most sin for me. It's this subtle mistrust in God. And I'll, I'll close with just reading this scripture to you. And I'm not going to comment on it afterwards. I'm just going to read it to you. And I'm going to allow the word to minister to your heart. And it's okay. And so I'll ask the worship team to come back up. And I'll read this. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom my eye, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, listen to this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that we would be able to comprehend what is the height and the depth and the length and the immeasurable amount of your love for us. I pray that we would stop looking at Christianity and following Christ as this, uh, we have to just stop and we have to be perfect and then we have to wait until you come back, Lord. But there's this new life awaiting us. 
I pray that we as Christians, we as the church, would be able to see the new horizon you have set for us. That we would not be separating ourselves from the word, from the world. Rather, God, that we would see the new horizon and we would be that city set upon a hill and that people would see that. They would want it. I pray for the marriages in here. Lord, I pray for the parents that have kids that have gone astray. I pray for uh, the broken, the, those who have lost their jobs, those who are in familial dispute, those who are bitter at you because of past abuse. I pray for everyone in here, Lord, that they would experience what is the full measure of your love for them. And that in that, Jesus they would discover new life and new horizon, God, that they would no longer want to sin. That they would be like, Paul, <laughs> why on earth would you want to go back to Taco Bell? Lord, I pray that that would be our hearts, God, that why on earth would we want to go back to our old ways when there is a clear direction of prosperity and life that is not absent from hardship, but is filled with joy and a peace that surpasses all understanding. I pray that you'd minister to your sheep here, Lord, tonight, um, this morning, Lord, and um, that we be able to worship you, um, that we not leave, but we would give you this time, God, and that we would trust that you are faithful to give back to us. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's worship, guys.